our second message in the book of Amos and talking about justice. And, and as I was looking through this, I, the idea of things hidden in plain sight came to mind. We've all heard that phrase, right? And sometimes it's silly because it's things like this. I can't find my phone. Where's my phone, right? While we have it up. Or, or you don't know where your sunglasses are because they're parked on top of your head. Or sometimes it's fun things like, you know, hidden images in paintings. Or as I was asking uh, my son, uh, you know, the Easter eggs in movies. So if you like Pixar movies... One of the things you need to look for is A113, right? Because it's the number of the classroom that most of these guys who are animators went to when they started learning how to animate. And so that's pretty much hidden in every Pixar movie somewhere. But then there are some things that are not quite so fun and, and, or silly. You know, wild animals can be great at camouflage, and it's one thing if it's a moth or a butterfly that, you know, kind of blends in with the leaves. But, you know, all you have to do is Google camouflage in, in wild animals and you can see poisonous snakes that look remarkably like a pile of leaves or the green leaves in a tree. Or lions surprisingly fade into the background in tall grass, right? The savanna grass of Africa. And sometimes those things that are, you know, those we say hidden in plain sight because it's only apparent in retrospect, right? That person is really not our friend, and if we would have been paying attention, we would have known that earlier. Or the financial crisis could have been avo- avoided if we had only done this. And we've all had problems hidden in plain sight. And the idea, of course, is something that seems hidden really isn't. Or at least not when you're paying attention or looking for it. And everything is going along great, and then that hidden problem rears its ugly head. And last week we heard a a lion roar. And Israel hears that roar a long way off as the lion stalks its prey, the traditional enemies of the people of God. And they feel secure in their fortresses, in their prosperity. Ha, the lion's after them over there. So much the better for us. But little do they know that the problem is hidden in plain sight. The lion is in the tall grass next door as much as far away in the nations. And so today we come to Amos chapter 2 verses 4 to 16. And this is how Amos continues after having called out the nations. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees. Because they have been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed. I will send fire on Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not turn turn back my wrath. They sell the innocent for silver, the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God they drink wine taken as fines. Yet I destroyed the Amorites before them, though they were... Tall as the cedars and strong as the oaks, I destroyed the fruit, their fruit above and their roots below. 
I brought you out of Egypt and let you 40 years in the wilderness to give you the land of the Amorites. I also raised up prophets from among your children and Nazarites from among your youths. Is this not true, people of Israel, declares the Lord. But you made the Nazarites to drink wine and commanded the prophets not to prophesy. Now then I will crush you as a cart crushes uh, when loaded with grain. The swift will not escape, the strong will not muster their strength, and the warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground, the fleet-footed soldier will not get away, and the horseman will not save his life. Even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day, declares the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to this second message in Amos, and it's not much more uplifting than the first, and I pray that today we would take heart this devastating message and yet the change because of the reasons why. I pray that we would see uh, the dangers that are so close to the people of God and that we would keep you first and foremost in our lives. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Last week, as we did an overview of Amos and we looked specifically at the sins of the nations, we saw that those sins were largely sins of inhumanity, of people being inhuman towards one another, and largely towards God's people. And today, those accusations, those crimes shift just a bit. And at first glance, we see that the consequences are the same, right? But as we get a little bit further in, we're going to see that it get worse. And that the sins move from inhumanity to violate of, of, from sins of basic violations of human decency to rejecting the revelation of God, to corrupting the covenant and leaving the law. Today's passage deals with both Judah in the south and Israel in the north. And they're discrete political entities and somewhat cultural entities, but as we're going to see, they have a similar, if not completely identical problem. And because of this, for our purposes today, I'm going to group them together. And collectively, they are the people of God, and the deeper we go, the more we'll see that they're actually suffering from an identical problem. And the root of that problem is idolatry. It's one of these things about the the problems that we see hidden in plain sight is that the root cause, to use an agricultural metaphor, is generally not immediately identifiable, at least not on the surface. It takes closer inspection, paying deeper attention. So we begin with Judah in verses 4 and 5. For three sins, even for four. It's the same formula that we saw last week when when Amos confronted the nations, right? And no doubt Israel is thinking, ha, those Judeans think they're better than us. Now they're going to get theirs. They shouldn't be thinking this. They should be realizing, oh, that roar is getting closer and closer to home. But they probably aren't. And those, those judgments last week, they start with the territorial enemies, and they get a little closer because Moab and Edom and, and those are sort of the cousins to Israel, right? 
And now we're on to Judah. And last week I told you that Judah was made up of two tribes, Judah and, and the Levites. But on further study, it may be that a few of the others who had taken possession of the, the southern land, uh, Simeon and Benjamin and maybe part of Dan, may have still been there as well. And I want to make sure that I clarify that. And in any case, the formula is the same and the judgment is the same. Fire to the fortresses, right? In this case, Jerusalem, the center of Jewish worship. But there's this distinct difference in the sins. What are we told? They have rejected the law. The word is Torah, the books of Moses. They haven't kept his degrees or statutes, the specific instructions of those laws. And how is that idolatry? You might wonder. And the second part of verse 4 tells us that they have been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed. I found this very interesting that what the NIV translates as false gods might be translated lies. And I think there's a connection here and it's no accident. And so there's two distinct possibilities about what Amos is saying. And both lead to the same place. The first is, throughout their history, from the golden calf all the way on, the Israelites have had a problem with idolatry. Of following false gods. In Deuteronomy 4, Moses gives instructions to the people before, just before they go into the promised land. And he has just been told that he's not going to enter. And in chapter 5, he begins with the law, the Ten Commandments. But chapter 4 focuses on memory and on who God is and on idolatry. And essentially, Moses reminds the people where they came from. Who are we? And he instructs them to follow the the decrees of the law, and he ties it directly to idolatry. It's forbidden, and the people are reminded who their God is. He's a different sort of a God. Different than any other God. He is the God, the creator of all. And we don't have time to go into all of this, but I would highly encourage you to read that entire chapter. It's not long. And in this he refers to it an event that happens in Numbers 25 involving idolatry, and it sounds remarkably like what we see in verses 7 and 8. And just a side note here, you're going to hear me quote a lot of other passages from the Old Testament today. And one of the things that we need to understand as we read the Bible is, if you read the prophets, you can't understand it without reading the Torah, without reading the history of Israel because they are completely tied in it's one story and I am going to go over and over and over again to lots of Old Testament scriptures to show those connections so that we can see this is one story and in order to understand where this is coming from we need to understand that the people are being told their story over and over again so that they will remember but in Numbers 25 It's just after Balaam had been hired to curse the Israelites in the area of Moab, east of the Jordan River, and just before the Promised Land. And they begin to worship Baal Peor. And the women of Midian invite them to make sacrifices, and they did. And 25.1 says, The men began to indulge in sexual immorality with the Moabite women. And there's this clear link between immorality and worship. It's part of the pagan rites. And it looks a lot like verses 7 and 8 in our passage today. And 
So there's this connection. And all of this stuff, this false gods stuff, is tied to worship and, and fleeing from God. But the second possibility is that false gods could be lies. That the people refuse to listen to the voices of the prophets and the priests. And, and Judah, or sorry, Amos ministers not long before Isaiah. And this is what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 9 to 15. It's remarkably similar. For these, these are rebellious people, deceitful children, children unwilling to listen to the Lord's instruction. They say to the seers, see no more visions, and to the prophets, give us no more visions of what is right, tell us pleasant things, prophesy illusions, leave this way, get off this path, and stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, this is what the Holy Holy One of Israel says, because you have rejected this message and relied on oppression and depended on deceit, this sin will become for you like a high wall cracked and bulging that collapses suddenly in an instant. It will break into pieces like pottery, shattered so mercilessly that that among its pieces not a fragment will be found for taking coals from the hearth or scooping out water of the cistern. That is so eerily similar to what we're hearing in Amos chapter 2. The people don't want to hear what the law says. They don't want to be told what God wants because they want to go their own way. And either way, whether it's false gods or whether it's lies, Amos does talk immediately after about the gods their ancestors follow. And Judah has silenced and forgotten Yahweh. And I actually believe that Amos has both ideas in mind here because of what we see in the accusations against Israel. There's a connection between silencing the prophets and following other gods. And the people rejects, reject God's instruction. They exchange truth for lies. And they don't walk with God, but they walk in the sins of their fathers. These are people who have experienced and have seen the truth firsthand, but have rejected it. And their crimes are against God. And the consequences are as severe as those of, of four and identical to the nations. But there's idolatry in Israel as well. They too have sinned and are the ultimate target of Amos, as we're going to see throughout this book. In Judah, we see the principle, you have rejected the law. And in Israel, we see it in practice. When Amos moves from Judah to Israel, he breaks his pattern. We still see the three, even four sins formula, the over and over again sins, but then he gets really specific. And there's a few categories here, and the first has to do with worship, just like Judah, but it's spelled out. And that's part of the reason why I think Amos has in mind both lies and false gods. Look at 7b and 8 and 11 and 12 in our passage. 7b and 8 talks about father and son with the same girl and lie down beside every altar. 11 and 12 talk about the Nazarites and the prophets. And last week I mentioned that there were shrines to false gods throughout Israel, specifically in Dan and Bethel and Gilead. And in the Numbers passage that I referenced earlier today, 
The connection between pagan worship and sexual immorality is clear. In the ancient world, there was often a connection between these two. It was a corruption of both worship and the purpose and importance of sex. And verses 7b and 8 are not just ick verses for us. They refer, likely, to the pagan worship practices of what we would call temple prostitutes or temple holy women. This is what pagans did in fertility rites to Baal and others. This is their profane worship. They exchanged the holiness, the set-apartness of God, and corrupt what God intended for sex. And not only that, they also, we are told, do this on garments taken as pledge and with wine taken as fines. They, they corrupt, it's corruption on top of corruption. They perform these acts of worship on garments taken in pledge. And we're going to get to the specific injustice of those in a moment. But for right now, I want us to remember what we said last week. Worship works its way out into the, the real world, into the way that we live our lives. It can't not do that. But before we get there, we also need to talk about verses 11 and 12. Verses 11 and 12 God says that he gave Nazarites and he gave prophets. And then they are stopped. Who were the prophets? The people who spoke for God. Who are the Nazarites? They are people who dedicate themselves to God in a very visible way. They don't cut their hair. They don't drink of the fruit of the vine. They don't touch dead bodies. And what have the Israelites done? Amos tells us that they have forced the Nazarites to drink wine. They have forced them to violate the core of their vow. They've done it in a public way. Why? Because they don't want to see someone who's dedicated to God. They have forced the prophets not to prophesy. Why? Just like Isaiah, they don't want to hear what God says. And I see a few applications for us here today in this. You know, it's tempting for us to believe that, oh, other Christians, ones that are not like us, they're sort of like us, but not really, are the ones who are guilty of silencing the prophets or of forcing the Nazarites to drink. You know, we we get into our Catholic versus Protestant, conservative versus liberal, high church versus low church kind of things. Those people aren't like us. They're guilty. But Amos reminds us that we can all be guilty. We can all be guilty of this kind of, <coughs> excuse me, of this kind of silencing of the prophets, of not seeing what God is up to. Second, it's very easy to claim to be God's people, to claim the name of Christ. And then to violate what it means to be God's people in what we do. And that's what Israel's done here. Third, sometimes it's not the world that causes problems for the church. For God's people. Sometimes it's us. And we need to be careful that we don't fall into that trap either. And and fourth, idolatry is still a problem for us today. You know, we don't have false gods that we have images of. But theologians remind us rightly that what is idolatry really? It is placing anything 
into the position that God should have in our lives with something else that we value more. And the people of Israel put other gods, Baal and Ashtoreth, and we've, there's a litany of these gods over time before God. But what they really deep down valued, what we see throughout Amos, is that they valued themselves. They valued their comfort, their ease. They valued making themselves feel good. And as we're going to see in just a moment, they don't care about others. And idolatry in this passage is directly connected. It is the root of the problem, and it works its way out in the fruit of the problem, which is injustice. Our worship is directly connected to the way we live. What we worship matters, and Amos shows that the root of the problem for Israel is a worship problem, and it works its way out in tangible ways. There are several that we can see here. Hubbard, in his commentary on on Amos that I referenced last week, says that the common denominator of these rebellious acts is abuse of power. And we see this in verse 6b. What do we see that they do? They sell the poor and the innocent into slavery for silver. In verse 7a, they pervert justice against the poor and the oppressed. In verse 8b, they take financial advantage of the poor and the unfortunate. You see the theme? The rich, the affluent, the people who are supposed to be the leaders of the country are deliberately mistreating the poor. They're perverting the law, God's law deliberately violating its essence. And the first violation in 6b, for as little debt as a pair of sandals, people are being sold into slavery. Perhaps the magistrates are being bought off to render an unfair verdict. But in the end, it's all about the money. People don't matter. Stuff matters. And it's a clear violation of God's heart. And I want to show you for a second a direct application. Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. And Elisha is in, is in view at this point. So it's several hundred years before Amos. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets. Remember last week we talked about the schools of the prophets and, the, and th- things like that. Cried out to Elisha, your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to me to take my two boys as his slaves. Elisha replied to her, How can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a little olive oil. Elisha said, Go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind your, you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars, each as, and as each is filled, put it to one side. She left him and shut the door behind her and her sons. And then they brought the jars to her, and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, Bring me another one. But he replied, There is not a, a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. So she went and told the man of God, and he said, Go sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. This is an identical example of what we're being talked what's being talked about here. The debtor, the debt 
being demanded and someone sold into slavery. And here God provides through his servant Elisha. But that's not happening at the time of Amos. There's no one like that. In verse 7 of Amos 2, we read that they trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Essentially, you're treating the poor like dirt. It may be, again, a reference to corrupt courts, but it is most certainly a picture of humiliation at the hands of the powerful. In, in Amos 5, verse 12, Amos says, There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. The idea is at the gates where the official civil business was done, those in power are thumbing the poor under. And it's likely that he has that in mind here in chapter 2. And, and the idea is simple. Push the poor aside for personal gain. Verse 8b. We alluded to the sexual immorality and it's compounded with financial impropriety. Lying on garments taken in pledge refers to Exodus chapter 22. In Exodus chapter 22, well, let's look at it for a moment here. In verses 26 and 27, we, t- we see the specifics, but I want to back up to verse 21 for a moment. This is um, in the middle of, of a section on, on protection of property, and then there's this sort of, in my Bible, it, the, the heading says social responsibility. And in verse 21, do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan. If you do, and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused, and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to one of my people who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. If you take a neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset, because that cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. What else can your neighbor sleep in? When he cries out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. What do we see here? Concern for the the needy. Concern for those who are socially and economically fragile. God cares for the oppressed. And the Israelites that Amos is writing to have a root problem of idolatry that works its way out in the way that they live. They are blaspheming God and they are destroying their neighbor in a single act. They're keeping the cloak put up as surety for a loan, which is in itself a violation of the law, and they flaunt it with wine taken as a fine. Injustice towards the poor is directly tied by Amos to their failure to heed God's law and to worship him. One leads to the other. And as Jesus said, a good tree bears good fruit and a bad tree bears bad fruit. And that means we can't say, I love God and abuse the poor. You can't do both. If we abuse the poor, we are not looking out for justice for all. And that Exodus passage makes it clear that justice doesn't stop at borders. Or if people aren't God's people... If they're not believers, 
the foreigner is included, and we must, as Christians, give that justice to everyone. That is our calling. And it's easy to believe that we've been taken advantage of. It's much harder to believe that we might be the ones taking advantage of others. In this case, in Israel, it's quite clear that the the violations are flagrant. The people don't care that they are violating the needs of the poor. They're, that they're fleeing from God, replacing him with pagan gods and self-indulgence. For most of us, it's not so easy to spot. We camouflage our guilt, right? Pious sayings and code words about individual responsibility and choice. And the reason we do this is because there's truth there. Because we do need to be responsible and we do need to have wise choices. But there's also very real truth that the deck is often stacked against people. And there is systematic injustice. The reality check for me is to think about our legal system. When the poor go to court, what's the chance that they will prevail? They don't have the money for the the good lawyers that the corporations do. They don't have the resources available to them. What's the chance that they prevail? Usually very little. And systematic racism was codified into our laws not that long ago. My father tells the story of growing up in Plainfield. And it was known that if you were black, you were out of town before sunset. That's just the way it was. And I've had conversations with friends that have said, you realize, of course, that Rush Street exists because they didn't want black people on Michigan Avenue in Chicago. And I had no idea because I grew up after that was a thing. And that's not that far in the past. And we have to be on guard that we don't fall prey to splitting out the sacred from the secular. If Amos 2 tells us anything is, it's that we can't do that. For the Christian, there is no such thing as the sacred versus secular. Jesus tells us we have to love God and love our neighbors. And it may be possible to love our neighbor and not love God, but it's not possible to love God and not love our neighbor. J. A. Motyer, in his commentary, puts it this way. When the grace of God reaches out to man, its purpose is to make him truly human. As we would say, the purpose of God's saving work is to make us like Jesus, the Son of Man, or the perfect man. It is a perversion, indeed a denial of this grace, when we become wrongly isolated from the world and its needs. And we, perhaps unwittingly, restrict our awareness of sin to those offenses which we commit against the first commandment and dismiss as even immaterial the sins against the second. When the Lord level against his people the charge of rejecting his law chapter 2 verse 4 and 5 he finds evidence supporting the charge in their social misdemeanors what we do to others shows our violation of the law consequences of this problem infection verses 9 and 10 of Amos 2 seem odd to us you have this sort of interjection in the middle of the story of a history lesson right I destroyed the Amorites before them, though they were were as tall as cedars and as strong as oaks. I destroyed their fruit above and their roots below. I brought you up out of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness. 
to give you the land of the Amorites. What's going on here? Why is that there? I believe it's a reminder to the people of Israel. Israel still believes they're special. And God reminds them, wait a minute. Who gave you this land? Who took you out? He compares them to the Amorites and the Egyptians. He delivers them from the Egyptians and gave them the land of the Amorites. The Amorites, synonymous with the Canaanites in this case, they ruled the promised land at the time of the Exodus. And you go way back to Genesis 15, and God tells Abraham, in the very passage where he confirms his covenant with him, that his people will be in bondage, but they're going to come back. And in verse 16 of Genesis 15, he says, For the sin of the Amorite has not yet reached its full measure. What does this mean? It means God gave the Amorites time. He lets his own people suffer in order to give the Amorites every measure of an opportunity to change their ways or to confirm their sin. And it's their sin that drives God to dispossess them. And then we see in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 1 to 6. Hear, Israel, you are now about to cross the Jordan. They're in Moab at the time. And go in and dispossess the nations greater and stronger than you, with large cities that have walls up to the sky. The people are strong and tall. Anakites, you know about them and have heard it said, who can stand up against the Anakites? But be assured today that the Lord your God is the one who goes across ahead of you like a devouring fire he will destroy them he will subdue them before you and you will drive them out and annihilate them quickly as the lord has promised you after the lord your god has driven them out before you do not say to yourself the lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness no it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the lord is going to drive them out before you It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going to take possession of this land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations. The Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God has given you this good land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. In fact, he goes on. The Amorites, the Anakites are wicked. And immediately after this passage, right after this passage, Moses recounts the story of the golden calf. Hey, this is what you did. Don't forget it. And in verse 22, he says, you have made God angry repeatedly. He adds a pattern. You have made God angry at Tabara, Amasa, at Kibroth, Hadava. I love the names. There's a pattern here. The people of God are not any better. In fact, they've constantly been a problem. And it's arguable that what happened here is that what Amos is pointing at is that the Israelites are acting exactly like the Amorites. They are acting just like the people who God gave the land to. 
who God gifted the land with. And part of the destruction of the Amorites, why they were supposed to wipe them out, was because it was to protect them from their sins. And they didn't do it. They never completed the task. And you know what happened? The sins of the Amorites hounded them for the rest of their existence. In fact, it's arguable that they are acting like every country that Amos called out in chapter 1. And they're guilty of the same crimes and worse because they have the revelation of God and those other nations didn't. They had a direct connection to God and they've sold people and they've oppressed the poor and they've corrupted justice just like the other nations did. And the false religion of the pagan neighbors of the Israelites has infected them. It changed who they were and to put a modern spin on it, they become zombies, the walking dead. They are corrupted and they've abandoned the covenant, going so far as to shut off the very things that would have corrected them. God's gracious gifts of Nazarites, the visible action, seeing dedication to God, the prophets, the voice of God to the people. And the people were to be a kingdom of priests, and instead they devalue God's election so much they treat it as divine favoritism. And they falsely believe they can do whatever they want and become whatever they want, and there are no consequences. They've sinned in the same way as their neighbors, and they ought to know better. Their sins are worse because they've got revelation and they've shut it off from themselves. And for the church today, the warning is clear. If our worship is compromised, if we replace God and the law with self, with entertainment, it's going to work its way out in the way we treat others. And we will be infected by the culture around us. And we won't know it. And we'll reduce God's call in our lives to divine favoritism thinking that we can do whatever we want because we claim God's name. And we have to be very careful that we listen to God's word of warning to us. They're actually living, that we are actually living out his statutes. That means with and toward one another. It means that we are watching and emulating those who are set apart to God. And I worry that the people of God us. We have all too often replaced God's commands and desires for us with pious sounding words that are versions of what we want. Do we love God? Do we love our neighbor? Or have we been infected? Because when the tree is infected from root to fruit, there's going to be a rectifying of the problem. God's going to intervene. And the consequences are severe. In Judah fire to the fortresses but verses 13 to 17 now i will crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with grain there will the swift will not escape the strong will not muster their strength the warrior will not save his life the archer will not stand his ground and the fleet-footed soldier will not get away the horseman will not save his life even the bravest warriors will flee on that day declares the lord harsh devastating and completely preventable. It was known. This is not God having a tantrum. In Leviticus chapter 26, verse 14. Yes, that Leviticus that we all often skip over. Verse 14. But if you will not listen to me and carry out all these commands, and if you reject my decrees and abhor my laws and fail to carry out all my commands and so violate my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will bring on your, 
on you sudden terror, wasting diseases and fever that will destroy your sight and sap your strength. You will plant seed in vain because your enemies will eat it. I will set my face against you so that you will be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you and you will flee and even when no, even when no one is pursuing you. If after all this you will not listen to me, I will punish you for your sins seven times over. And it goes on and it gets worse. This is built into the covenant of Israel. This is part of the covenant. There is a reward for obedience and there are consequences for disobedience. God says at the very beginning, this is what happens. And the people of Israel have ignored and abandoned the covenant and God doesn't. God says, no, I'm here. The first 13 verses of chapter 26 are a reward for obedience. The next 32 verses are punishments for disobedience. It's not a pretty picture. God is not abandoning his covenant in Amos 2. He's fulfilling it. He's faithful when we're not. You know, this winter was brutally hard on the boxwoods in front of my house. All brown. Winter burn. It looked terrible. This past week, even yesterday, I had to cut them back. It's not an infection, but it might as well be. They look terrible. And one of them I had to cut all the way to the ground. There's a little bit of green there. It's devastating. I hated doing it. I don't like doing that at all. But it's the only possible way to save them. That's it. I need the light to shine so that new growth can grow. In our passage, there's no doubt that the intervention of God is divine punishment. But it's for a reason. It's to turn the people back to God. This is what, in that same Leviticus 26 passage, happens in verse 40. But if they will confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors. No, not just our own. Their unfaithfulness and their hostility towards me, which made me hostile toward them so that I sent them into the land of their enemies. When their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they pay for their sin, I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. And I will remember the land. For the land will be deserted by them and will enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. They will pay for their sins because they rejected my laws and abhorred my decrees. Yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them or abhor them so as to destroy them completely, breaking my covenant with them. I am the Lord their God, but for their sake I will remember the covenant with their ancestors, whom I brought out of Egypt in the sight of the nations to be their God. I am the Lord. The punishment is real. The pain is real. The fault is not God's. He's been faithful when his people have not. And when we read this passage, I hope it drives home for us that we can't claim God's name and reject his instruction. We can't say we love God and hate our neighbor. We can't claim that our beliefs are right, that our worship is right, and be cruel to those who cannot help themselves. We cannot oppress the poor and think we're following God. It can't be done. When we do these things, we trade our identity for the infection of the world. As Moses says in Leviticus 26, we have uncircumcised hearts. 
And over and over again, Scripture shows us that the people of God, us, we are to be His ambassadors, His light to the world, a peculiar people, a city on a hill. The question we need to ask ourselves is, are we? And I conclude with the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14 and following. This is what Paul says to us that I think echoes Amos. He says, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. And it is from, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is our charge, so that we would not be in the same place as Israel in the time of Amos.